ragazzi, qui si smonta tutto. Il prima non si fa più. Due giorni qua non ci deve essere più niente. Bisogna cominciare subito. Coraggio al lavoro, buttate giù. Dico bene, autore? Sì, grazie. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo. Lo speriamo. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Welcome to Cinema Italia. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a critic and a film writer, and I have with me Matthew Asprey-Gear, who is an academic, a university lecturer, and a writer on film. He has published works on Orson Welles, uh, amongst many other things, and uh, he has lectured on uh, Vittorio De Sica's Umberto D, and will be doing so uh, this year as well. So um, he's a perfect person to talk to about this film, which Ingmar Bergman uh, it's once cited as his favorite film. Uh, I'm not sure if he ever said it's my favorite film of all time, but he certainly said it was a film he watched hundreds of times, and he uh, and he kind of held up as an emblem of naturalistic cinema. So, um, uh, welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be here, John. Um, and so, right, let's have some really let's let's get get some background on this film this is uh vittorio de sica it's often held up as a classic of of neorealism italian cinema um it's made in 1952 so this is maybe a little bit a, a later example of neorealism is that would that be correct yeah probably in by by some historical reckonings one of the last of the kind of classic cycle i think um so it's kind of at that moment when the neorealist filmmakers are all starting to move into different areas. So yeah, this is quite a nice, uh, I wouldn't say the final neorealist film, but uh, it does seem like we're kind of moving towards the end of a, and that cycle of immediate post-war films. So what what is Vittorio De Sica's sort of relationship to neorealism uh, and, and sort of how does he, uh, how does he proceed this film? Well, De Sica's a pretty extraordinary figure in Italian cinema because before he became the kind of world-renowned director that everybody spoke about, he was a movie star. He was a movie star in the fascist years um, and starred in those movies that uh, were described as white telephone movies. So he was a, a very bankable star. But then, and he was directing films actually before the end of the Second World War, but his notable films after, well, they came after the, the end of the war, Shoeshine, The Bicycle Thieves, and the, they were really among the most celebrated of all the neorealist films and really seemed to signal something very new. I think the Seekers particular, what he particularly brought as a director to neorealism was some of the knowledge he had as an actor because he was working sometimes with non-professionals, uh, like many of the neorealists. But I think of all those directors like Visconti and Rossellini, the performances in De Sica's films by non-professionals are 
by my reckoning better than in any other neorealist films because i think he was he thought like an actor and he knew how to i guess teach novice actors skills that they could use that really do create tremendous performances and i think umberto d is a great great example of what you can get out of a non-professional actor yeah, it's interesting that he um his son is also a famous actor in contemporary italian uh, cinema although unfortunately his uh, career has been you know almost exclusively the cinema panettone the sort of uh, sex mm-hmm. comedies that come out every christmas it's, Cinema Panettone, to translate, it's like uh, Christmas cake cinema because it, it stands for this. I, I guess the nearest British listeners would recognize would be uh, a carry-on movies, um, seasonally inflected. So the, the the apple fell quite far from the tree, although they do look very similar physically. They're very, uh, the, the face is very similar of both Christian and Vittorio De Sica. Um, this film as well is dedicated to Vittorio De Sica's father and so that just right at the very beginning you have this idea of the respect for the elderly could you tell us maybe give us a quick idea of what the the, the film is about and the story sure yeah well the title character Umberto D is a retired gentleman uh, we don't learn very much at all about his past except that he worked in uh, civil service or something for many years but he's struggling to survive on the pension that he has been given uh, and that was not unique uh, because the film starts with a protest of pensioners against the very meager allowance that they're being given but uh, Umberto is uh, living as a lodger in the house of a woman who is clearly becoming very impatient with uh, having him there at all. She wants to get rid of him. He owes her money. And yes, it's the story of uh, his increasing desperation, trying to pull together enough cash to pay off the debts he owes. So that's that's the basic uh, setup of the film. Yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Uh, what Have I missed something important? Um uh, I, well, I, I'd, I'd add two two things, which would be like his his um, his friends in the world. Um, uh, obviously, the most famously the dog Flyke, uh, which is um, sometimes translated in subtitles as I think Flag. They sometimes, uh, for some reason, some subtitled versions of the film have, have that name, but Flyke is the the dog's name, which who has to go as like that's co-star status for the. Um, the... For sure, I think he might have been a professional actor, Flyke. So uh, <laughs> I think his real name was Napoleon. So the irony, yeah. the irony mm-hmm. of that. Also, the landlady is played by a famous opera singer and uh, sort of operetta singer and, and glamorous star in herself. And that kind of keys in with her role as well, because she is this mm-hmm. sort of upwardly mobile, well-to-do woman of show, you know. Um, and the other sort of subplot, if you like, which isn't directly related to his, um, to his own ordeal, is that of the uh, housemaid who uh, the young woman who kind of befriends him and visits him when he's sick called Maria. Um, she's played by Maria Pia Casilio, who like uh, Carlo Battisti, who plays on Bertoldi, uh, both of these were uh, non-professional actors. 
she went on to have a pretty significant uh, career as an actress. Uh, this was her first her first movie. She's in a few later Desika films and uh, yeah, had quite a career in the 50s. Yeah, she was sort of fished out of the audition. It was like that. I mean, I'm always slightly um, suspicious of that copy when you read about someone who, oh, I was just accompanying a friend to the audition and then I got chosen. I've 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 read that in so many uh, stories that I sometimes think, yeah, you wanted to be picked out. I think that's the way to get the role to be the friend <laughs> of the person auditioning. <laughs> just make sure your friend's rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> sit beside them and then that you'll get picked um yeah no that's and, and i mean the, the beginning of the film as you as you say it it's um we sort of begin with a real sense that this is a, a um a, a film which is going to say something about italy in the post-war years because it starts with a political demonstration in the heart of rome and it's all these old people um in their, their you know hats and their overcoats and their um and they're sort of cr kicking up a fuss. Hmm. Yeah. And I, what De Sica does with that is really interesting, I think, because, you know, it could have been easy for this to be a more sort of ideologically driven social film. I mean, we've in the neorealist movement, there are a number of those, like La Terra Tremor and so on. Um very much about the kind of collective story of people who are suffering. But uh, no, we even at the opening protest, uh, some of the other pensioners who were there protesting kind of indicate that they're all coming from different uh, degrees of desperation. And um, so very quickly, this becomes the story of one man as well as the the friends, as you say, he may he has uh, in his, this this boarding house he lives in, um, more so than a kind of story that takes us into a a, a broader social issue. Mm, mm. I mean, in a way, if you look outside of um, Italy as well, this film sort of speaks. There was a, an American movie around about this time about a couple. I can't remember the name of. I'm gonna stumble but it was um but it was about a couple who were were, were potentially going to be separated because they couldn't afford to live together and they were like an old retired couple and it was about the, their families i'm going to google that in a second and get back to you on the on the title um but that idea of the old generation kind of uh you know what did Heidegger say? You know, you can you can die too young, and that's a tragedy. But you can also die too old, and that's a tragedy. And that seems to be the the case in 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 this film. Yeah, Umberto D. I mean, he seems to be a bit obsolete. He doesn't. He's not actually that old. I guess I don't know how old the actor was, but I guess he's sort of maybe around seventy or something. But I, mean, I guess in those days in Italy, that was considered pretty elderly. But um, I, I think because he doesn't seem to have any family connection, he, he's sort of retired to a very solitary life uh, and he doesn't serve much purpose in any respect. Uh, so he is, I guess, unlike many people of, of that uh, elderly generation at the time, he doesn't have the family to sort of fall back on, which would be a very different story. He has this kind of, uh, he has his dog. And he has uh, his friendship with the housemaid. But the other friends we glimpse 
who he sort of sees on the street and kind of quite desperately, you know, seeks some help from, have very little time for him at all. So he's sort of a somebody who, in his lack of family and real close friends, has wound up being virtually useless to the society. And um, Seeker both makes this extremely compassionate, but Umberto is also a real character, and you can kind of see why some of his friends might walk away from him pretty quickly, because he's by no means an idealized, uh, sentimental, older gentleman, as I think would have been very easy for many um, directors to portray. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he's somebody who you can kind of see the path that led to where he is, even though he doesn't remain. Uh, you know, he's never unsympathetic, but he is he is a character, which I think is one reason why this film is so rich. Yeah, I mean, right at the beginning, he's sort of like taking people's food off them while they're trying to eat, right. and they're kind of quite hungry, and you can imagine that not being... I never quite understood why he's doing that. Is he just distracting the waitress so that she doesn't see the dog? I think that's what he's doing. He's, he's feeding his dog under the table with his leftovers, and uh, by kind of, you know, being the kind of uh, helpful customer helping the the waitress uh, take the other people's plates away uh, he's kind of hiding the dog yeah. gobbling up the rest of the pasta even though they're the, you know the other people are like old people like him who are really yeah. hungry and poor and they need their food by the way the name of the film that i could remember is make way for tomorrow leo leo uh, mccary and actually kind of predates this by quite some some time it's 1937 so it's a, okay. a good Depression-era film. Yeah, exactly, 15 years. But yes, very, very much a Depression-era film. It's funny how America's making something which is very about the economic problems of being old mm -hmm. and how society and, and also young people don't really need, want you around anymore. And then post-war, um, Italy's making the same film. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you want to add something to that? I, well, saw, just you, that, I saw you uh, looking uh, pensive. <laughs> <laughs> just just in the sense that you, if if you watch a lot of neorealist films of this era you can kind of trap track the very rapid economic rehabilitation of italy mm. after you know the devastation of the war and you know the immediately post-war um neorealist films show a very impoverished italy particularly in the south by the time we get into the early 50s things have clearly improved and um the tone of the films generally tends to be a lot lighter um but obviously that's not true for everybody in that society and uh, yeah so the plight of the elderly is a particular particular problem that uh, was was clearly in the background while you know the italian miracle was starting to gain speed in the 50s yeah i mean uh in fact, the landlady sort of trying to kick him out is a sign of her prosperity. She's she's trying to renovate the building, and she she needs him. It's like uh, you know people who live in rent controlled apartments in New York, in an area of gentrification. They need to be, you know, get get rid of these guys, um, so I can move my family in, or I can move another someone who's going to pay more for the for the room. Um, 
so Umberto sort of goes on a kind of um, he, he's he's kind of spends a lot of time wandering Rome, and this is this is a film where, where you get well a little bit like Bicycle Thieves as well. There is that sort of Odysseus like journey that is taking place, or or, or maybe better still, Ulysses, uh, you know, the, from James Joyce, that sort of wandering around the city, and so you get a mm-hmm. portrait of the city as well, which adds to that sort of state of Italy aspect to the film and this is not really la dolce vita rome this is uh you know, very sunny 50s rome um but yeah it gives you a great sense of uh the city you know not even 10 years after the end of uh, fascism it's really i think there was some studio work i think all the stuff done in the apartment is as a studio creation but there's a lot of stuff that takes place out in the streets as neorealism has had always tried to do so yeah really great sense of of this place and time i was i I wanted to ask about that as well how how when we're talking about neorealism and we're thinking of people like the seeker and rossellini obviously as as possibly the first uh neorealist um what are what are you looking at that is is saying to you this is definitely a neorealist film and, and and sort of we were already mentioning this is a later example and so it's uh so so what are the differences or what are the similarities between this and an earlier example like Shoeshine or, or the Bicycle Thieves? Well, I I think De Sica he said and admitted that there was never a time when you know he sat down with Roberto Rossellini and Visconti and they hammered out a kind of manifesto of neorealism. It was very much, I think, an approach to filmmaking born of the very specific circumstances after the Second World War and the limitations because of the the way the Italian film industry had been destroyed. So they were working, particularly Visconti's early films like Rome Open City, they were working with whatever materials they could gather. They didn't have almost any money. They were using scraps of film stock. And so what we know as Italian neorealism, you know, defined by the use of real locations and natural lighting and so on, was, I think, in many cases, a consequence of that particular set of circumstances. So, um, yes, the immediate post-war films of neorealism do have a lot in common. There was that scrappiness to them the you know the sense that this was a very new type of cinema out on the streets and then eventually as the film industry recuperated uh and i think these individual directors were never exactly purists so they sort of developed along their own lines and um so by the time we get to something like umberto d in the early 50s but de sica is really uh you know he's taken He's continuing much of the mode of working that he had used in earlier films like Shoeshine and Bicycle Thieves, but yeah, I don't think he has any sort of purist agenda. The The purist here was the screenwriter, Cesar Zavattini, who wrote 20 films for Britisica, but uh, was very much the kind of cheerleader of the movement and its theorist. But uh, I don't think De Sica was anywhere near as committed to neorealism as a project. So, I think one of the oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. It's really. It, it, I think the thing that really surprised me when I saw um, 
uh, Bicycle Thieves, which was the first Seeker I saw. I saw it on the big screen as well. I was very fortunate to see. Uh, it's always great to see a film like that for the first time, you know, in, in the dimensions it was meant to be seen. I was, I, I had in my head realism as being something uh, you know, I'd seen in the 1980s as being sort of like a handheld camera or mm-hmm. something Ken Loach or some some sort of sense of working class authenticity, um, but kind of a little bit drab as well as, as one of the things. And what you see in Umberto D as well as in uh, in his previous films, I think, but I, I, you know, by all means push back, is that there's actually a real sort of operatic um, sense to these films? That there's a real, um, there's a real aesthetic sense to that. They're not, they're not, you know, devoid. They're not completely bare in that sense. I, I mean, I'll give you an example in Umberto D. The, um, the 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 well, the demonstration at the beginning, of, of course, but also when when they go into the cafe, the the way that the space in the in the canteen is organised, it's not like a cramped cafe. It's like it's, it's you know, quite cavernous and big and echoey, and it's full of people. And there's just this sense of of yeah, of course, this is a poor place. This is where people are getting cheap meals, but there's still a sense of space and and the way the space has been organised by the director feels theatrical you know well yeah i mean you can also credit the cinematographer the great gr aldo who also shot la terra tremor and other de Sica films uh, for his wide angle cinematography and that deep focus that was such a feature of the movement but i guess that just goes to show that you know realism in any of its manifestations is as artificial as expressionism it's the illusion that what we're looking on on screen is reality it's not there's no such thing as reality on screen it's just uh, the intention of the director to create that illusion and in different times there are going to be different uh, approaches to that which signal to an audience that what they're looking at is reality so yeah, um, this was not a time really there could be handheld cameras. The cameras were too big. Um, mm. That's something that came later. And yeah, and I, I think De Sica, among the sort of big names of neorealism, was really a great, he was, he was a great poet of the cinema, someone who was able to find the poetry in these images of supposedly drab real reality in post-war Italy. So it may not seem to have that kind of, you know, uh, the sense that we are just glimpsing real life on screen that it might've had, if we saw this in the late, you know, in early 1950s. Uh, I've, I've also seen, I mean, if you look at Paisan, the Rossellini film, it incorporates a lot of newsreel footage. And so it's kind of, it moves back and forth between newsreel footage of the war and then these dramatic reenactments. And I think for the average person in the 1940s, because of the use of black and white cinematography for newsreels, reality seemed, at least as it appeared on screen, corresponded to the aesthetics of the newsreel. So today we see a black and white newsreel from the 40s. We don't think that is really the visual language of realism. But I think in the 40s, that very much would have been 
the immediate response of the audience. Yeah, yeah, sort of visually ripped from the headlines as a, yeah. as, a, as an aesthetic, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, famously, obviously, Citizen Kane uh, and its opening um, sort of pastiche of newsreel would be a would be a visual um, um, parallel to to, to that. Um, when you have Umberto going to these various different things, and he, he sort of, as you say, he was meeting his he's meeting his old old people. He goes into a hospital, which again, look, <laughs> it's huge. It's such a uh, it's the uh, lens. It's all in the lens. Yeah. <laughs> that deep focus. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, I'm glad you put brother up because I think that is the thing. You know, you every image you can see all the way back to to the back of the hall, the back of the room. It's another debt to Citizen Kane. Yes, yes, right. In fact, Aldo had worked with Orson Welles uh, on Othello, um, which had just been shot. So, Oh, right. Yeah. Is that the, Othello predates Umberto D? Othello was released uh, in 51, I believe. It took several years to make, so it was right. being made in the late 40s. And Aldo was one of several cinematographers who worked on that, yeah. Right, that's that's an interesting connection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's going to these these different places. A hospital. He's he at one point he loses um, Flyke and he has to he goes and he thinks that Flyke might have been um, caught and and killed. And I mean, you you again, it's almost the the bicycle thieves does the same thing where you you sort of see behind the scenes of loads of very specific social moments mm-hmm. which we're not used to seeing. It's almost Oh, it has that same um, interest that a documentary has of sort of like, oh, do you ever, you ever wonder how this was done, or you, do you ever wonder what happens to dogs that go missing? Here, here here's the 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 uh, the reality. Mm-hmm. Do you think this from a? I mean, it's a slightly difficult question, but from a domestic point of view, from Italians watching this film, is this a way of them sort of rebuilding their identity as well uh, post-war? Well, I think De Sica said that Italians, the audiences didn't like this movie. Um, I don't know how well it fared at the box office. I don't think it really made very much money in Italy. Um, And generally, as far as I know, De Sica's work as a director, uh, you know, he did occasionally do much more commercially orientated projects, particularly later, but he was always facing a great deal of difficulty getting his passion projects on screen i don't think this was really the movies these were not the movies that the italian audiences necessarily wanted to see at this by this point certainly there were lots of other films that were making a lot of money but uh yeah i think this is probably i mean i think it was probably accused in some quarters if i remember of being too much of a downer and too much of a negative portrait of the state of italy after the war um, so I, I think we look at this today and we, we recognize its importance to Italian cinema after the war, but I don't think Italians particularly were that keen to, to see this sort of thing on screen. Giulio Andreotti, who was the uh, culture minister of the Times, uh, came out vocally against the film for precisely that reason. Oh. Andre- Andreotti would go on to be the subject of um, Il Divo, the film by uh, Paolo Sorrentino, uh, that's mm-hmm. that that speaks to his longevity. That <laughs> he he was uh, he just went on and on and on. He he's he, one of his uh, quotes, which became famous. Andreotti, this sort of Machiavellian 
uh, politician was that politics grows in shit. <laughs> that was <laughs> I know, that was his that was his public statement of, of his his own political philosophy. That's one for Bartlett's quotations, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Maybe it sounds a little bit more refined in Italian, but it's. Uh, I don't think it is. I don't think it's that far from. Probably that. sounds worse. Exactly. But, uh, well, I mean that does raise a good point too. I mean, if we are looking at the evolution of neorealism, because in the immediate post-war films, there was a kind of liberty for those filmmakers in terms of they were basically free. Well, to some extent, free of censorship in a way that would not be the case by the time we get to the late 40s. After the 1948 election, um, there was a lot more ability on the part of the government to exercise some censorship. And so, yeah, a lot of the, the films were, you know, to some degree hamstrung in what they could really, you know, how hard hitting they could be. I mean, even today... You look at Rome Open City and it's quite shocking in its violence. It's really explicit, uh, torture scenes. And um, it does have that feeling of being made in a kind of atmosphere of of chaos uh, where nobody was really able to control the material. Um, but yeah, that was not really the case after 1948. So, yeah. I mean, one of the most shocking elements of the film from an Italian audience, and certainly from the uh, vision of um, you know government ministers and the church and whatnot, would be the subplot involving Maria, friend of Umberto mm-hmm. D, and because she is, uh, you know, she's pregnant, and um, which is yeah. bad enough as an unmarried mother in terms of the social mores of the time and the religious teaching of the time, which is still uh, you know overwhelmingly Catholic. Um, but she also doesn't know uh, uh, the identity of the father, so it's it's quite mm-hmm. obvious that the she's sexually active uh, in a way that um, that is out, not only outside matrimony, but but you know, um, well, there, there there would be words for it in Italian, which would be which which would be very insulting. Well, that was something Zavatini, the screenwriter, seemed particularly interested in examining on screen. I mean, he made, uh, well, there's a film, an omnibus film that came out a, a couple years later, Love in the City. And Zavatini was kind of the ringleader behind that film. So it has about six segments by different directors. And Zavatini himself co-directed one of the segments with uh, Francesco Maselli, who just died very recently, uh, called The Story of Caterina, which is a story about a young unwed mother and uh you know who is eventually because of the terrible poverty that she has to live in uh eventually she winds up abandoning the child and this was based on a real incident that took place and the remarkable thing is the actual woman played the mother and it's so it's zavatini pushing near the neorealist approach to a kind of extreme level really but that very theme of the 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 limited options of women who are not married who have who are pregnant uh it runs for a lot of these these films in a compassionate way i mean love in the city generally touches on this uh circumstance uh, in its other segments as well but uh yeah i mean umberto d does you do get a sense from the film um 
that it is uh, giving a real insight into the situation this girl's in. Um, the fact that her problems, in a way, are probably much more profound than the problems Umberto's in, even though the focus of the film is on the old man's uh, dilemma. Um, it makes it all very kind of complex and fascinating. And I like that the film doesn't in any way condemn Maria um, in the way that Italian society would have condemned her at the time. Yeah, and it sort of bookends the, you know, you've, you've got both demographics, if you like, uh, right. that you've got the very old guy <laughs> and then, you know, the unborn child and, and the, the mother as a... Uh, um, an opposite end to that, but but sort of like almost unlikely allies in the, mm-hmm. the, the they're both to some degree outside of society's what society deems as appropriate or net or, or useful. Mm-hmm. Well, does does Seeker really likes the juxtaposition of characters of different generations? I mean, Bicycle Thieves is a great example with the uh, father and the son and two women with the mother and the daughter um, seem to be. And a, a dramatic approach he was called. Maybe Zavattini needs to get credit for that, but um, you see it in several of his films. Yeah, the original title of the film was, uh, uh, I think, was a man and his dog, and Umberto D became sort of. I'm not sure if it was a working title that then they decide I, we prefer that. The D is the is the um, the middle initial, I think, of mm-hmm. of, of his name of the main character's name. Um, I was rewatching this. I was kind of. It, it, I can't help but think of films about people with their dogs. You know, there's a science fiction film based on a Helen Ellison short story called A Boy and His Dog with Don Johnson from the 1970s. Um, and any number of apocalyptic films use the man and dog trope as, a, you know, from I Am Legend, Fruit of the Road. Um, Boy and His Dog is apocalyptic as well. Uh, what Here, I mean... The, I don't know. This we you used the word earlier, and I I kind of want to sort of get your thoughts on this sentimentality. Where, mm-hmm. where how does this film manage to pull your heartstrings so much and be so sentimental, and yet not fall entirely into the sort of sentimentality swamp? I mean, there's that old rule of screenwriting that if you want to make a character likable give the character dog to love because if a character loves something they can't be all bad and Mm. uh and this is i think a great example of that but the sentimental i guess i guess the the way that it escapes sentimentality is because as i said i think umberto you know is a complicated character and in some ways you know he's he's his own worst enemy in some ways i think but I think, too, the fact that this film resolves itself, if it, well, it doesn't really resolve itself. I mean, we end we end with something that's both hopeful, but we also get a sense that whatever solution Umberto needs to take, uh, it's, it's not going to be easily arrived at. And it's kind of not the point of the film. Because um, it's, it's, it's not really your standard arc of a kind of sentimental film about a man and a dog i mean it's Mm. it's you can imagine how this film would be reworked if it was made remade into a hollywood film um just couldn't work the way that it does in this one 
I mean, I think that's one of those questions that comes up a lot watching films from this period as well, is um, one of the reasons they seem to break through to an international audience and an English language audience, and therefore more America than anything else. I mean, it bounces off America and hits England as well, but the rest of the English-speaking world, but it's really New York that has to be convinced that these films are interesting, um, is that it's Italy returning to international filmmaking. You know, mm-hmm. Italy was huge in the silent era and was, you know, in many ways in the forefront. Italy and France were in the fourth, and Germany, uh, of making films in a way that really challenged um, Hollywood. As, you know, Hollywood was just one of many centers of film rather than being synonymous with filmmaking. Um, so when these Italian films start coming out post-war, because you've had that period where no one was watching Italian films in the English lang- in the English-speaking world, um, you have all these fresh talents that have just been, you know, simmering there and 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 developing and maturing, and they burst, you know, fully formed like a goddess from Zeus's ear. Um, and there is a little bit of an element that I do sometimes wonder is is. So, for instance, a production design element of an Italian film in this period is that they they're filming in Rome. You know, if you film a, if you shoot a film which is set entirely outdoors, it makes a difference if you're shooting it in you know bomb bomb strewn uh, Coventry or you're or shooting in Rome or Florence. Um, mm-hmm. It that makes a really big difference. And likewise, if you're doing something which is kind of sentimental. You maybe get away with it a little bit more if it's subtitled rather than if it's um, if it's James Stewart talking to a giant rabbit. Well, maybe that's true. <laughs> I, I mean, sub, <laughs> or, I guess... or is that too cynical? That that sounded well, more cynical than I I wanted it to be. To tell you the truth, but it might be it might be a fair point that sometimes as audiences, uh, English speaking audiences, uh, watching foreign language films uh we may tolerate things in those films that we would maybe not be so tolerant of in a hollywood production um but that said uh i think the reason that this this film sort of spoke to the world as it seems to have done is there's something very timeless about this story and very that kind of i think i mean although it's a story very specifically about a social condition in post-war Italy. Um, it seems to be a story that could exist anywhere. And I mm. think that's why Berg, probably what Bergman was celebrating about it was, it was a kind of a timeless tale. And <clears throat> it has something of the the purity of uh, a fable, I think. Mm. Mm. So I don't, I mean, I, I think it is a, it is a very moving story emotionally, but um, I don't really find it sentimental. No, no, I don't either. I mean, again, I, I sort of slightly retract that. But when I was rewatching it, I was really thinking, "My God, this is on a knife edge," you know. And but that's I, why it works so well, I think. But because, precisely, yeah. You know, you don't feel you're being too manipulated. And with when dogs are on screen, uh, that's a very <laughs> that's a very common thing to to take place. Absolutely, and of course you've got like Bergman's making wild strawberries. Um, Kurosawa's making uh, Iriku. Uh, no, Ikuru. Um, 
Ikuru, uh, thank you very much. One of those, one of those film titles you read and never have to say. So, <laughs> Ikuru, um, which has be- recently been remade as Living, uh, uh, um, which I've not yet seen, but but strikes me as a bit unnecessary. But I've not yet seen, so I shan't. I shouldn't. Shouldn't judge. Um, so this idea of, as you say, this universality of this old, this dilemma, I mean, it even goes back to Leah, you know, what do you do with the king when he's not a king? What do you do with mm-hmm. somebody when they've served their purpose? And in a way, that might be what makes a film less sentimental, because the sort of solution of what to do is quite is come to quite early on. And the real question is no longer what to do or why, but but how. It just comes down to a basic how do I go about doing this? And that is, um, yeah, that that makes it kind of weirdly pragmatic and un, and unromantic about, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert. He 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 doesn't see a very good way out of his solution. He, he he's hopeless. I mean, for me, it's it's an ending a little bit like uh, the Beckett ending, where you know I can't go on, I can't go on, I will go on. It's mm. sort of you know. We don't know how he's going to get out of this immediate predicament, or even if he does. But, um, I mean, the film could end very despairingly if it ended with uh, what he plan, what he what he considers doing. But instead, it ends on this kind of moment of, uh, you know, we're we're at this at this sort of point of uh, okay he's he's gone to the the edge of the darkness this character and he's kind of retreated now and and there is some sense that okay he's going to pick himself up and figure out how he's going to continue mm. um but it's a, i mean I, another reason this film i think escapes sentimentality is that it is it goes very frighteningly close to that to that edge of darkness and you know, so it's 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 both a, you know, it's a funny film in many ways, and I I have to kind of check myself because I sort of my my first instinct is to think of this as a bit of a comedy because it is quite funny at times, but uh, it's also a very dark film and it doesn't give any easy answer to to the to the predicament the way that sentimental films do. You know, the sentimental film leaves you feeling like everything's resolved and. You know the whatever emotional challenge is involved has been resolved, but not in the case of this film. No, absolutely not. I, I'm glad you brought up the the, the comic aspect as well because it's something we haven't really talked about yet. And that is, you know, there's a lot of satire in here. You know, as, uh, in terms of the the landlady, for instance, is is a wonderful um, portrayal, but also his him and Flick and their various sort of adventures have have a sort of shaggy dog story element to them, if you like. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the interaction between uh, Umberto and the maid, too, is, is you know, quite comical because, you know, when she's looking out of his window at one of her boyfriends and he's kind of not really interested in anything she's excited about and she's not really that interested in anything that he's concerned about and... Uh, you know the fact that these two characters are you know they have their own lives going on that are you know that have their challenges um winds up being quite comic the, 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 even though that they have they they're not on the same page in in most respects they still clearly are affectionate towards each other so yeah i i i think of this in a very uh 
you know, I think the seeker was a, I mean, he was a great comedian. I mean, if you've mm. seen him perform, he was an absolute master comedian. And I think no matter what he was doing, that comic sensibility was always there, um, which is not the case necessarily with say Visconti or someone like that. Absolutely. I mean, even right up until that final scene where you have um, the, the railway crossing, there's a lovely bit of detail where um, the, the guy with a flag who's obviously like the station master or the crossing guard or something, and he's he's stopping people from going and arguing with the motorist because the motorist is going, come on, let me go. And he's like, no, there's a train coming. What do you want to do? You know. And while they're mm -hmm. having this argument, Umberto D is sort of wandering towards the tracks with his dog in his arms and a, mm -hmm. uh, a dark thought in his heart. I mean, that point as well, you just mentioned earlier, the edge of darkness, he goes to the edge of darkness. I mean, that is one of the stunning shots of the seat of yeah. the film. It's a, it really kind of, it reminded me a little bit of that apocryphal story of the, the first audience watching the film of the train arriving at the station all dodging out of the way. It really is a, mm -hmm. a moment in film where you feel the violence and the proximity of, of, a tr you know, a violent train bearing down on you. And it's also all the swirling dust. And mm. uh, I mean, it's an incredible shot. And I guess, you know, it's difficult to really know how close that actor was standing to the train. And I guess, you know, the camera helps uh, create the impression that he's very close. But whatever whatever they did, it, it's horrifying. And, uh, you know, the, the despair of the man at that moment when the dog breaks free and... He's kind of blinded by the dust and crying for the dog. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm. And we don't know if the dust, the, the dog has run out onto the yeah. tracks or or run away or or, or what what the situation is. Yeah. So there's there's this there's this incredible human drama, but mixed in with very gentle comedy at times, and uh, you know, and and Desika never seems in this film to put a foot wrong in terms of negotiating those modes, uh, which I think is why this is so remarkable because mm. it would be so easy for, to get this wrong. And most of the time films do get it slightly wrong. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's as, as I've already sort of alluded to, it's kind of a balancing act and a very, a, a very, very delicate one. I mean, I, I I love this film and I love that ending. I think it's I think it's what you you're talking about earlier. It, it's absolutely true that there is this sense of this could just be a delay. This or this could be a change of heart, and you just don't know. And there's no way of knowing. But there is a sort of hint, I think, in as he's walking away. You have like a, a a whole bunch of children just sort of rush and sort of rush in between him and the camera. So that we are, you know, we do get that circle of life, life goes on feel to the ending. He, I mean, he, his individual story might be almost over, but there are still things will carry on. It's, I mean, I th I think very much present in this film too is, it, this is a film about a kind of humbling of this character. Mm. Not quite sure he is humble by the end of the film, but um, because he's not, I mean, yes, he's in a dire situation, but many people are in much worse situations in Rome at this time. And I don't think the film is blind to that. I mean, this is a character who 
was, you know, seems like to have been a relatively kind of more middle class character in his earlier years, who's now, you know, down and out. And you see that in the pride that he takes in the way that he dresses. You know, he has is is virtually nothing left, but he does always have his very nice suit clean and he's always looks very presentable and takes great pride in appearances as middle class people do um and the crisis is i think the fact that he's i mean he's desperately afraid of having to wind up in the shelter as he, he describes it so it's about somebody sort of slipping out of their class as much as it is uh some i mean he's, he is falling into poverty of course but I think the class element is very much uh, present here too. And he's not really aware of that, but we are as an audience and the, the filmmaker certainly is. There's almost a sense that if he wasn't middle-class, he would be much more resilient because he'd be part of a bigger, a bigger community as well. And there would be more, but that he's an independent man living on. I mean, De Sica does this brilliantly as well in his casting because, um, uh, Carlo Battisti was a was like a, a Florence professor of languages, and so mm-hmm. you know he is somebody who's spent his whole life being received with respect uh, and all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, there is a humbling uh, happening here. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody when when I've taught this film, uh, one of the students in my class uh, said that uh, you know if. He had no idea that Carlo Battisti was not a professional actor. He was uh, somebody who had his own career, as you say, as a professor. And he said, uh, oh, I thought this was like Italy's greatest actor, you know, performing. I mean, you get the sense this is this is a powerhouse performance by a, a master actor. But in fact, no, it's uh, somebody. And I think that was De Sica's great talent. I mean, and it's the idea of the neorealist casting is instead of bringing in a professional actor to play a character you go to the source you find somebody who approximates that character's position in society usually and then you teach them how to act and mm. you know you see la terra tremor or paisan and sometimes you know the acting is not always so strong there are some pretty awkward moments but with De Sica, he 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 really does elevate the performance to something that is spectacular, and you know, kind of he, he makes a great argument for that approach to casting. That yeah, you can get somebody who who has enough similarities to the character that the only real necessary step is to teach that person to act well enough to to get it across. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, one question I wanted to, uh, in fact, I, I I wanted to sort of uh, close on was um, you're teaching this in in as part of your course. What what reactions do you get from first time viewers? People, so some people must be watching it for the first time when 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 you're talking to them. Yeah, well, I I programmed this in the first week of my my course on postwar Italian cinema because I pair it with Paisan. Because Paisan's one of the earliest of the neorealist films by Rossellini, and then this is kind of the you know towards the end of the cycle, so it makes a nice sort of you see the beginning and towards the end. Uh, but the reaction to Umberto D tends to be, uh, you know, extremely positive. It's one of, I think probably one of the films in the course people like most, and I won't say it's been forgotten, but 
I mean, Desika generally seems to be not spoken about too much these days. I mean, for a long time, Bicycle Thieves particularly was always spoken about as one of the great you know, top 10 films, and I think it made the sight and sound list several times. Um, but I, I'm kind of surprised myself because I've, I've gone back into looking at all this Desika stuff again, and I'm kind of surprised so few people really talk about Desika these days because I think he was... No, I mean the number of great movies he was responsible for directing is pretty, pretty significant. You know, five, six, seven great movies, I think, and mm. uh, not too many directors can claim that. But yeah, so the response to Umberto D is uh, always extremely positive. It's you know, it's I think it very much deserves it, its status as a classic, and yeah, yeah. I mean, he's um. It's interesting that you say that about the, if you like a sort of canon of, of films, not like necessarily the sight and sound list, but I remember growing up in the 80s and being the first time I was interested in cinema. And it was Bicycle Thieves, Seventh Seal, Seven Samurai, Citizen Kane. And there was this list that you just, mm -hmm. that everybody um, kind of, all the books agreed on that. Everybody agreed on these are the films you have to see. And uh, or, you, or if you read an interview with Stanley Kubrick, those were the books. That, those were the films he listed. Or, or um, and and the, yeah, but the eighties were is now forty years ago, and yeah. you know things. The sands have shifted. The sands have shifted through the hourglass. I don't want to give the the impression that uh, you know. I, I think that these lists should remain static, and I think. You know this conversation is always ongoing, and there's it's impossible to have a any sort of definitive list of anything. But um, I think maybe De Seeker has been left behind a little bit. Um, I mean, there's kind of you know he's recognized for his role in the history of cinema, but I think there's a lot to rediscover there. I mean, there's the key classic films like. Shoeshine and Bicycle Thieves and Miracle in Milan, which we haven't mentioned, which is another wonderful, wonderful film that it's kind of near realist, but it's also a kind of fantastical film. I, I, I wanted to bring that one up simply because um, during COVID, I did a, a series of uh, lessons for my, uh, my university class and I asked... Uh, I emailed a lot of people to volunteer and come in and do a lesson for me because we were locked down and we were the first bunch to be locked down. So we weren't quite sure how it was going to pan out. And Armando Iannucci, um, mm -hmm. the great writer and director, uh, very generously went, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he's, he he proposed Miracle a Milano, Miracle in Milan, um, which I'd never seen. And, and yeah, that is a stunning and surprising film. And it doesn't really fit into the neorealism sort of box as neatly as, um, as say, Bicycle Thieves or, or, or Shoeshine or Umberto D does because of this magical element, which you just mentioned. But it's also, it's Zavattini writing the script and De Sica directing, and uh, it's about a shanty town on the edge of Milan and... You know, I think it just shows that, you know, there is no real purity of neorealism. It was a very useful sort of set of approaches to making films and I guess themes, but, you know, it's not limiting. And yeah, so Desika, I mean, just those four films in that core neorealist moment uh, were, were would alone by my, for me, uh, 
you know, make him a, one of the great directors. But he made a, many other great films as well. And yeah, he um, had a whole second act in in the sixties where he know. was continuing to direct up until the early seventies when he mm. died. And uh, yeah, but um, I mean, Two Women I think is another you know tremendously great film with Sophia Loren. Mm. And yeah, there's um, and he did, he actually made some just very frankly very entertaining comedies that oh. you know maybe don't have the pretense to being great works of art but well, are nevertheless yesterday you know, today and tomorrow yeah, and, right. and marriage italian style are two of my favorite mm-hmm. italian comedies definitely there I'll, so. I'll recommend uh a de Sica, not a not a film he directed himself but uh a film he appears in with sophia loren and marcello mastriani called well the english title is too bad she's bad from <laughs> 1955 and uh i think this is uh a hilarious kind of Italian screwball comedy from the mid fifties, uh, very early on in the careers of Loren and Mastroianni. And De Sica is also just wonderful playing Loren's father. So super. Oh, I'm going to hunt that out. What's do you, have you got the Italian title there? I don't have it right here. Um, oh, okay. No, I don't it's speak okay. Italian, but I'll, it's, it's yeah. directed by Alessandro Blasetti from 55. So ah, too bad. Right. She's bad. Okay. I'm going to look that up. And he also directed Peter Sellers in After the Fox, which mm-hmm. was uh, <laughs> is one of those Peter Sellers films that always seem to be on on during Easter holidays. <laughs> yeah, he made a lot of films. And uh, it's true that in the later years, his reputation, which, when he was alive, his reputation declined. I think the French New Wave didn't seem to like De Sica very much. Um, I mean, well, Andre Bazin did celebrate him, but um, yeah, he wasn't celebrated the way Rossellini was um but yeah yeah i was going to say i'm on team that, de sica yeah <laughs> i was i i was um uh rossellini was like the godfather of um like jean-luc godard was absolutely in hock to him and mm-hmm. uh well, truffaut was his assistant and, yeah yeah, yeah. Now, i remember there's a story about them he's driving rossellini back to the airport uh, Goddard, which kind of shows as well how you know, I'll I'll ferry you about and everything. And uh, Goddard was saying, "Oh, you know, what did you think of my my recent?" He was waiting to hear the opinion of the master about his latest film, and um, uh, Rossellini said, "Oh, it was a little bit. It, it smacked. There's a danger of Antonioniism here." <laughs> and and uh, Goddard drove off the road. He was so shocked and upset that uh, he was being accused of being like Antonioni. And uh, ouch. You know, well, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I lo- I really like Antonioni. So I'm not. Um, I, but but these camps were being set up and you couldn't so so yeah you you can't just like everybody you have to pit them against each other otherwise um you know you're not john luke goddard Mm -hmm. well yeah i mean that i've always felt the french new wave uh directors were much better directors than critics so um even though that's where they started but uh Mm. yeah the I think I, maybe it's because De Sica and Zavattini were such a, a partnership for so many years, and it's hard to find an auteur if the uh, auteur has a a screenwriter writing all the movies. I don't know. Right? Yeah, yeah. But but you know, I don't know. I like Billy Wilder and yeah. AI Diamond and Hitchcock and Lehman, and you know, I like these mm-hmm. partnerships. I think they're uh, I, I think they're they're a good thing. 
sometimes uh, working in 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 teams is is good uh, for the movie sometimes yeah. it it's great when one person's behind it but yeah absolutely so uh, matt can people sort of join your course online can they sign up to to your courses sure um yeah no i run this italian course will be back uh I kind of run them on a on a sort of cycle so they they come back every six months or so so um if you take a look at my website uh com, you'll see when it's scheduled and i have other many other film courses i run as well but uh, yeah it's a very uh low pressure 12 week course that uh you know the only homework is to watch the movies and most people manage to to do that and uh yeah it's 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 it leads to really interesting discussions and uh, they're usually pretty international groups of people so we get many different uh responses to these to these films and i've really loved uh, jumping back into this cinema which uh you know we know the the kind of the key big titles but uh, yeah when preparing it and having to like really seek out lesser known films both in neorealism, but I also, the course moves all the way up to the end of the 50s. So we look at other filmmakers and different types of films as well. So yeah, it's been very rewarding to do that kind of really intense uh, study of Italian cinema in this golden age. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I hope you'll come, come back on the podcast and uh, talk about another film at some point in the future. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. Thank you. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.